Well, if you saw the title on the board, it was called Christ Jesus, period. Let me tell you where the inspiration for this message came from. I'm in Bible college, and a, a, one of the studies we began was an, what we call an exegesis study. And in that study, we picked a scripture, a scripture that was very meaningful to us. And then each week, for five weeks, we had a different assignment with that scripture. We had to, you know, I just won't go into all of it. We had a different assignment that we had to write out, and we had a little bit of homework. And uh, on the sixth uh, application of that particular exegesis study, we had to get before the class, <laughs> come before the class and preach or teach, however you want, share. It's all the same thing, really. Uh, a 12-minute message. 12-minute message for me is... It's easier for me to preach an hour-long message than it is a 12-minute message, but I did it. I didn't hardly take a breath. I mean, I'm just like Speedy Gonzalez. And at the same time, all of my fellow students had to critique me, both orally and I got their little papers that they filled out, too. And so that was all good and stuff like that. I mean, and I took the criticism really with, you know, I mean, great honor, really. I, I can learn from my classmates. And uh, they were very kind to me, of course. And uh, of course, they said, you talk way too fast, and you don't spend enough time on your points that you're trying to make. And You know, when I looked at their sheets that I, I took home with me, one of them, I don't know who it was because they didn't have their names on it, but it said, this was a very needed message that the entire body needed to hear. And as I left the school that day, I thought, you know what, the whole body does need to hear this message. And that was what I named it, Christ Jesus, period. So I want to begin by using the scripture that I picked. It was Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Can't be anybody in here that's not heard of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And when I say that, you probably immediately go to what that scripture says. Here's how it reads. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it puts that period right after it. This is, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. So as I said to my class, we had to form what we call a thesis statement. I've not been really good about that over the years. Usually when I preach, everybody's trying to figure out, where are you going with this thing? You know, about halfway through it, oh, okay. My wife always tells me, I'm like, honey, that was good, but I didn't know where you were going for the longest time. And, and that's the importance of a thesis statement. Thank you, David, for the class. That's the, really the importance. It sets up the whole message so people can go, okay, it's the thread that says, okay, this is where we're going. And I've changed my thesis statement a little bit, but it read something like this. I basically said, I wanted to teach for a few minutes this morning on the subject I feel brings clarity to this message of no condemnation. We were married to our first husband. His name was Mr. Law. He wasn't a very good husband, but we were married to Mr. Law. But Christ's sacrifice released us from our first husband, Mr. Law, so that we could be married to another, and his name is Mr. Grace. <laughs> Don't you love that? Do you know who Mr. Grace is? It's Jesus, isn't it? So that we could be married to our new husband, Mr. Grace. And as our hearts embrace this priceless reality, we can quickly draw this conclusion, if you will, that the workings of condemnation and the thought of in Christ are totally incompatible. Condemnation in Christ, totally incompatible. 
I refer to it as exiled emotions. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but do you know something? You know, the word exile means to get carried away. The word exile uh, means to be displaced. And sometimes that's what happens in our emotional realm. We get carried away. We get something that gets stuck in us. And I heard a little bit about that through some of the songs even this morning, that, that one we were singing by Big Daddy Weave. It was talking about how I used to be and how I used to feel, but I am redeemed. <laughs> I am redeemed. And I wish, I really do wish that everything came out of our mind when we're redeemed, but it just doesn't seem like it happens that way. There's a process of getting it out of your mind, out of your spirit, brand spanking new. Perfect man inside there. So my question is, is a life of no condemnation possible for the believer? Do you believe that's possible for the believer? A life of no condemnation whatsoever. The answer emphatically is yes. A life of no condemnation is very, very possible for the believer. Yet over my 20 year journey as a believer, I've noticed, I've witnessed, and I've experienced. I'm telling you, this is Mark talking now. I've experienced firsthand the wreckage, if you will. I call condemnation a superbug. <laughs> it's a superbug that comes in and just tries to wreck your life and wreck everything about you, your finances, your relationships, and whatnot. It just comes in and attaches itself to you. One of the bugs I hate worse than anything is the cockroach. I'm just being honest with you. The cockroach. We were so poor when we were growing up. We, you know, we moved all the time, and all we could afford was houses with cockroaches. I don't know what it was, but I hate the looks of a cockroach. I hate the smell of a cockroach. I don't like cockroaches. And when I was thinking about cockroaches, you didn't think you were going to hear a message on cockroaches. Look, we got we to break this thing down, first of all, before we can get it built up. So when I was thinking about it, I had a flashback to this cockroach bait stuff they used to advertise on television called the Roach Motel. Do you ever see that? The Roach Motel? Do you remember what their slogan was? It was, they check in, but they don't check out. And I thought, wow, that is exactly what condemnation does. It checks in, and it says, hey, wait a minute. I bought a one-way ticket, I'm not leaving. It checks in, but it doesn't want to check out. And you can get mad at condemnation, you can stomp your feet, and you can shake your fist at it, you can yell at it, and if you get in the flesh, you can cuss at it, you can do whatever you want. But I'm going to tell you something, that will not make condemnation move away. It's an awesome superbug, really. Condemnation is like a cricket in the bedroom when you're trying to sleep. <laughs> you know what I mean? A cricket in the bedroom. Now me, I could actually go to sleep with a cricket in the bedroom. Wouldn't phase me a bit. Some of you are not that way. I mean, I could lay right down next to a cricket and go to sleep. But think about this right now. My wife, she's totally different. You could take a cricket and put it in a box, put that box inside of a box, and that box in a box, and that box in a box, and that box, take it to the farthest room of the house, open up the closet door, put the box in there, put pillows and blankets all over, shut that door, shut the other door, and my wife would still hear that cricket and couldn't go to sleep. Condemnation robs you of your rest. Could you go to sleep with a cricket in the room? Could anybody go to sleep with a cricket in the room? It bug you? <laughs> you could. <laughs> you could. Probably most of the guys. But I want you to think about that. Jesus' central message was rest. He was always talking about rest. And you hear me quote this scripture over and over and over again. I'm not going to stop quoting it because I love it. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. That's what he said. Now, the word laden there literally means cargo. You ever feel like you just got this cargo on you? You've got this heavy load that you're dealing with. In fact, if we think about a semi-truck driver, they actually call it a bill of lading. It's, it means a bill of cargo. And I thought about Tyler when Tyler, my son Tyler, went to the boot camp in the Army. He was telling me, he said, Dad, we have this backpack that we put on. It's called a ruck pack. 
He said, we put this thing on. He said, it's got everything in there, including the kitchen sink. It's got everything in that ruck pack. You've got shovels in there to dig with. You've got water. You've got food. You've got all your clothes. He said, that ruck pack weighs about 100 pounds. And he said, you know what? He said, one time we had to go run with it for eight or nine miles. I'm like, with a 100-pound sack on your back, son? What's up with that? I thought the army was abusing my boy. I wanted to come to his rescue. Can you imagine? That's what condemnation does. It's like this ruck pack. It gets on your back and it just won't leave you alone. It's just there to keep weighing you down, friends. I'm going to tell you something. Listen to me carefully. Jesus came to get rid of the roaches. He came to get rid of the crickets in your bedroom. He came to take the backpack off of you so that you can be free. And it's that backpack of condemnation that so many people are carrying around. I'm going to tell you, I have been freer in, I'm freer right now in my life than I have ever been in my entire your life. Thank God. And you know why? Because I have that revelation of there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, if as believers we want to walk in victory, then we must change our minds. We have to bring our thoughts into the harmony of the gospel of grace, and we have to stop being driven by exiled emotions. Don't let the, the emotions tell you what to do. Don't let them boss you around. Emotions can be very healthy, but some of them run wild. They're kind of like AWOL emotions is what they're like. And as I was meditating on that earlier this week, the word exiled, it literally means displaced or carried away. And I thought, wow, what do you mean, Lord? And I thought about, and I preached this a while back, when people start fires, they're called arsonists. And if you remember the message I had preached, I had said 90% of people that start fires, arsonists, they do this because of displaced anger. They have displaced anger working in their life. Let me tell you what displaced anger is. That would be like me being mad at Sarah and then taking it out on Lola. That's displaced anger. And so what happens is these people grow up and these kids grow up and many of them never had a daddy. Many of them, their daddy was mean to them or he was far from them or he abused them or it could be something else that was going on. And they have all this bottled up anger and they've got to take it out on somebody. They don't want to stand up to daddy. And I, and I thought about this last night, and it, and it brought tears to my eyes. I thought, my goodness, I remember growing up uh, all my life. My daddy died in 1994, and I was 33 and a half years old. And my daddy had never told me a single time that he had loved me until the very last conversation I had with him. And I longed to hear, son, I love you. I longed to hear, son, I'm crazy about you. I longed to hear, son, I'm proud of you. And, and, and I, I wanted to hear that from my daddy. And it was the very last conversation we had together. He was in the hospital and I was talking to him on the phone and finally at the end of the conversation, he couldn't hear very well and I said, Daddy, I love you. And he said, what? <laughs> and, I, and I had to get, I had to say it like two or three times and I had to start screaming it. I just, I, I just felt like, wow, that just lost its effect. I mean, love is a tender thing, you know, and I had to yell this and finally he said, uh, I love you too, son. But you know what I'm saying? It's displaced emotions, exiled emotions. And as I was sitting there in my study, I heard the Lord say, go to the book of Daniel. And I went to the book of Daniel, and here's what uh, I found. I found that there were four men in particular that were carried away. They were exiled from Jerusalem, and they were taken to Babylon. Their names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? But that was not their Hebrew names. That was the name, their Chaldean names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them once they came to Babylon. And as I thought about those guys, 
and I began to look in Daniel chapter 1, here's what the Bible says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. That literally means he overwhelmed it. He overwhelmed Jerusalem. And sometimes our emotions, that's exactly what they'll do. They'll overwhelm us. <laughs> they'll just come in and like, a, like a flood, you know, and overwhelm us. He besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried away to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's servants some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Now watch what happens here. He's went to Jerusalem, he's taken the people, exile, he's taken them captive, and he's brought them to Babylon. And he finally decides, there's some people I want in my service, but I want the best of the best. I want the best of the best. And he says, here's the checklist, here's the criteria that they've got to meet. You ready for this? Number one, they have to be young. And he goes on, he says, they, they've got to be without any physical defect. They've got to be handsome. They've got to be, have this aptitude for learning. They, he, he lists this whole list. And so his servant goes out to find men in this crowd. Now I want you to try to get this picture. You've got 10,000 men out here. And they've got to meet this criteria. You were actually a man technically at the age of 12 in the former days. You became a man at age 12. And so he's looking for young men. Let's just say young men are from 12 to 18. So you go out and you're looking at 10,000 men and you say, okay, anybody under the age of 12 and anybody over the age of 18, you can get up and leave. You're dismissed. You would have just lost about 9,000 people just like that. Now you've got about 1,000 people. Now the next criteria you have to meet, no physical defect. That's a much tougher criteria to meet. <laughs> you could walk by them and just say, hey, listen, you know, I noticed when you walked up, you had a little bit of a limp. You're disqualified. You can leave. I noticed you've got a mole on your nose. You can leave. No, you don't really, but I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> hey, I noticed that you have a colic. You can leave. There, any physical defect, you were dismissed. Now, you would have narrowed that group down to about 100. And then he says, he says, you have to be handsome. I'm still in the running, ain't I? I'm young. No physical defects in Jesus' name. But he, when he said handsome, he literally was saying, you have to be GQ. You've got to be, I mean, like a, a young Elvis Presley. I mean, everything going, man, from the smile, you mean, to the hair, to everything going. You've got to be handsome. Well, you know what? That narrowed it down to about 50 right there, or less probably. And then he says, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. In other words, he said, listen, now the rest of you have to take an aptitude test. We're going to see if you're smart. And then the results come back, and he said, well, now there's only 20 left. And then he says, you have to be well-informed. You see how the group just keeps getting a haircut? It just keeps getting narrowed down more and more so? And he says, you have to be quick to understand. He said, you have to have all these qualifications going on in order to be able to serve in the king's palace. In other words, what he was saying is, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebi, if you will, he went after the perfect ones. He went after the top guns. He went after the elite. He went after the cream of the crop. That's what he was going after. Condemnation loves to go after the perfect ones. I preached a message here not too long ago about being perfect in Christ. Condemnation is like a tick. It's like a tick. You like those ticks? That's another bug. It's like these ticks. I mean, it will feed on dead things, but it prefers living things. 
You know why? Because it can only burrow so deep. And when it sucks up the blood in something that's dead, it's got to burrow back out and go over here, drill a new hole. It would just prefer just to stay in one hole and just keep sucking blood. So it's just a whole lot easier. It will feed on dead things, but it prefers the living things. Nebuchadnezzar was looking for the perfect stuff. Let me tell you what Nebuchadnezzar's name means. His name literally means tears and groans of judgment. Ooh, that's a powerful name. And tears and groans of judgment. Or another way to say it would be tears and groans of condemnation. Who carried away Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? It was Nebuchadnezzar. What does his name mean? Tears and groans of condemnation. Condemnation will carry you away. Condemnation will exile you. Condemnation will take you from one place to another that you don't want to be and keep you for a very long time. Now, this is what I felt the Lord say. Our enemy would like us to believe that we have to meet certain criteria in order to be in the king's service. In order to be sons and daughters and maintain this sonship, he would like us to believe that we've got to meet certain criteria. And I thought about this, and I'm like, wait a minute now. It wasn't my young age that qualified me. I heard Alvia talking about that this morning when I walked in. She was talking about qualified. It wasn't my young age that qualified me for, to be a son of God. It wasn't the fact that I had no physical defect that qualified me to be a son of God. It wasn't the fact that I was good looking that... You know what I'm saying. Uh, that qualified me to be a son of God. It wasn't the fact that I was smart and I was quick to pick up on things. God didn't look at all that stuff and go, yes, that I can use. You are qualified. No, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to say it loud and clear. It was Christ Jesus, period, that qualified me for the king's service. It was Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Daniel, Daniel, his name literally means God my judge. Well, wait a minute now. You said, wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar was tears and groans of judgment. Now you've got God my judge. You know what? I'm going to tell you something about judges because I had a friend, a dear friend of mine where I used to live, was been a judge for many years. He's retired now. But he would say, listen, I'm not out to just get people as a judge. I'm not out just to find a bunch of guilty stuff on them. My job is, is to restore people. My job is to say, what can I do to make you a good citizen of the community? And he had all kinds of applications that he could, he could do to restore. When the gavel falls with a judge, it's not always about you're guilty. Sometimes it's about, hey, listen, you're innocent. Hey, listen, I find no guilt in you. That's the heartbeat of a good judge. And when it says, Daniel, God, my judge, it is literally saying God is a good judge. God is a good God. And I thought about uh, one of the greatest scriptures. We're talking about this theme of love this morning. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we stop right there. What about the next verse? For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him, through Christ, the whole world would be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Why do we walk around with this condemnation on us all the time? He came to give us life and life more abundantly. Hananiah. Let me talk about his name for a second. Hananiah is the male version of Hannah. <laughs> Hannah, Hananiah. Hannah's name means grace. What does Hananiah's name mean? means grace. Same thing. Male version of it. Mishael literally means one who is like God. One who is like God. Mishael. That would be Meshach. Azariah, his name literally means Jehovah helped. These are powerful names. So you've got grace, one who is like God, Jehovah helped. And I felt the Lord say, look at those in reverse order one time and see what they say. 
You see, we have God's nature, don't we? It, they literally say, Jehovah has helped us to become like Him through grace. <laughs> so powerful. Jehovah has helped us to become like God through grace. We have God's nature. Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of peace. It's the city of rest. That's what that name means. The city of peace. The city of rest. I want to live in Jerusalem. But now Babylon. See, Nebuchadnezzar went down to Jerusalem and got all these people and exiled them to Babylon. The name Babylon, I really didn't know about this until I started looking at it a little deeper this week. Babylon, not so good of a name. Not, not a very good name at all. If you think about it, the actual name Babylon comes from the Hebrew name Babel. Babel. And when you go back to Genesis chapter 11, you see a group of people who decided to build their own city. <laughs> you remember? They, they decided to build their own city. They want to build their own city of peace. There's so many people out there today, they, they say, listen, I know how to build my own city of peace. You just leave me alone. I know how to get peace. I'll get my own city of peace. So this group of people decides to go build this city of peace. And they get going, and it's like, hey, everything's looking good. Hey, how about if we build a tower? You know, we got to work our way to heaven, so let's just go ahead and start working on it right now. We'll build this awesome tower that can reach the heavens. And you know why they did that? The Bible says if they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's your first twisted motive right there. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Bad news. <laughs> and so God saw them working all together. What cracks me up is the Bible says that God had to come down. So the Bible says God came down to see what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, you got this perfect bird's eye view. You can just see everything. But God wants to come down, be close, kind of walk through there and say, well, no, exactly what are you guys doing? And God said, you know what? Based on what they're doing and the fact that they're working in one accord, he said, nothing will be impossible for these people if I don't stop them. See, I don't want people building their own city of peace. I don't want people trying to work their way to heaven in a tower. I want to do it myself. So he said, lest I stop them, they're going to accomplish this. And the Bible says what he did is he confounded their language. It literally means he mixed up their language. If there were 5,000 people working together, he would have said, you're going to speak Japanese, you're going to speak Chinese, you're going to speak Russian, you're going to speak Spanish, you're going to speak English. And I believe when they opened their mouth, I believe they thought they were still speaking their native language. Except everybody's looking at him like, what are you talking about? Nobody could understand each other. Their language was all mixed up. I like what my former pastor used to say when he would uh, be preaching and he would mess up his words, he would say, I got my mix all talked up, is what he would say. <laughs> I got my mix all talked up. But God confounded their language. Here's what Babylon literally means. Are you ready? It literally means the city of mixture. You know where I'm going, don't you? It literally means the city of mixture, the city of confusion. I want that just to sink in your heart for just a second. You see, you can live under the mixture message if you want to. You can live under the Nebuchadnezzar message if you prefer. But you know what you're going to experience if you do that? You're going to experience crickets in your bedroom that are always there to keep chirping, keep, keep robbing you of your rest. I've decided to step out of the Nebuchadnezzar spirit, that cricket and cockroach spirit, and decide, listen, it's all about Jerusalem. It's not about Babylon. Jesus. Jesus was not crucified in Babylon. He was not crucified for the mixture message, was he? No, he was crucified just outside of Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified to bring us peace, not a mixture message. He was crucified to bring peace. 
He was crucified to release us from that Babylonian spirit of condemnation. You and I have been crucified with Christ. We've been crucified with Him, according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I remember when I first got saved, one of my favorite songs I would listen to on the radio was one by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. It was called Crucified with Christ. That was one of the songs I just about wore out that CD, just listened to it over and over. I don't remember all the words unless it starts playing, but I do remember some of them. It says, when I look back at what I thought was living, I'm amazed at the price I chose to pay. And to think I ignored what really mattered because I thought the sacrifice would be too great. But when I thought finally reached the point of giving in, I found His cross was calling even then. And even though it took dying to survive, I've never felt so much alive, for I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but Christ that lives within me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and He gave Himself for me. Let me tell you something about crucified people. Let me tell you something about dead people. They are not moved by exiled emotions. (laughs) They're not. I have preached so many funerals in my life, many more than weddings. The last funeral I was at, they they had a 10-piece marching band, all brass. I mean, it was the loudest thing you'd ever heard in your life, all in a little funeral home. And I kept looking over at the dead guy thinking, are you going to get up? Man, you could wake the dead with this music. I never heard anything like that in a funeral home. My goodness. But I'm telling you, they're not moved by emotions. They're not moved by feelings. They're not hijacked by feelings. In Acts chapter 17 verse 28 the Bible says, for in Him we live and move and have our being. Does it say that? I am not moved by feelings. I do not let feelings determine where I go in life. I am moved by Christ Jesus, period. Amen? Feelings will lie to you. I remember several years ago when my mother was still alive, she put an ad in the paper for a housekeeper. She hired an elderly lady, and I, I remember the first day I went over, that lady was there cleaning. She, was, she seemed normal in every way. She was just functional. She was cleaning my mom's house all up and stuff like that. And I said, uh, Mom, I said, would you like me to cook you some lunch? She said, yeah, son, I'd like that. I said, how about spaghetti? Yeah, let's, let's have some spaghetti. So when I started preparing, I made sure I had enough for the housekeeper. Now, I want to feed the housekeeper too, right? I take care of the housekeeper. So I, I made enough for her. And I, I said to the lady when we were done, I said, would you mind eating with us? She said, uh, oh, no, I, I, I couldn't do that. I said, why not? I said, I made enough for you. She said, I, oh, I understand that. She said, but uh, I just feel, I just feel like my, my cat would think I was cheating on him. Now, you know I can't leave that alone, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. You, you might have just said, okay. <laughs> I said, say that again. I just feel like my cat would think I was cheating on him. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if I go home and my cat smells that spaghetti on my breath, he's going to know I had dinner without him, and he's going to be mad at me for a very long time. I looked at, well, let me just say this. There are times when crazy things like that happen. If my wife here or Sarah, they're kind of like two peas in a pod like this, if they hear something really crazy like that, you know how you would normally just go, okay. When they hear something crazy like that, their expression is priceless, and they just leave the O out of OK. They just go, K. <laughs> it was definitely one of those moments where I wanted to go, K. You have lost your little doggy brain, lady. Oh, my goodness. I don't know why I, I find myself in situations like that all the time. I ministered to that woman for a while. I told her about Jesus. I, I just began to 
to minister her. You know what? I can't prove this, but I believe she had been under condemnation for so long it had warped her psyche. Because she was functional and everything else. She told me she was an accountant for like the bank and everything else. I'm thinking, you got to be really smart to have that kind of job. You know, that's what she used to do and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow. So, you know, sometimes when we get under condemnation so long, it just warps our mind. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb to explain this. How many of you grew up watching the Flintstones? Did you grow up watching the Flintstones? I like the Flintstones. I really did like the Flintstones. I found out the other day, because you can Google anything, I found out the Flintstones are older than me. I'm 54. I was born in January of 61. The Flintstones came out in September of 1960. No wonder I like the Flintstones. I grew up watching the Flintstones. On every sitcom or series or cartoon, you have this opening credit, and then you'll have the episode, and then you'll have these closing credits. First of all, in the opening credits, it shows Fred getting off work. You know, he, he's on top of that big brontosaurus, and he gets off that, and he comes home. It's probably Friday night, you know. He gets Wilma in the car. She's got pebbles in her hands, you know. Dino, and they have this, I remember they had this, this I don't I didn't remember what it was. It's like this prehistoric cat. It wasn't like a little bitty cat. It was a cat, and his name was Baby Puss. That was the name of the cat. And Dino was the dinosaur. Do you remember that? And anyway, all of them get in the car together, and Fred picks up the car, and off he goes, you know, down the street. And he picks up the Rubbles. He picks up Barney and, and Betty and Bam Bam. They're all in the car together. And they go to the drive-in. Hey, you think I'm kidding? You can go look it up on Google one time. They go to the drive-in, and they watch a movie together. And then you see the episode, and then when they have the closing credits, they're all leaving the drive-in. And they got that song, Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're a modern Stone Age family, you know that? Let's ride with the family down the street, blah, 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 you know? Flintstones, meet those Flintstones. Anyway, when they leave and they go home, they drop off the rubbles, and Dino is the first one that goes into their stone house. He goes in, followed by... Uh, Wilma with her little bitty pencil legs walking in. She comes walking in with uh, the baby, you know. Uh, what's her name again? I'm losing but Pebbles, yeah, Pebbles. And then Fred comes in and that saber-toothed cat He's a real ugly cat, too. He's a real big cat. He's about the size of Fred when he stands up, actually. Big cat, you know. And uh, he's got these big, long fangs hanging down. Just an ugly-looking cat, you know. He's like a prehistoric animal, you know. He comes running in alongside Fred. And then the next thing you see is you see Fred open the door, he sets out this milk bottle, and he picks the cat up and sets the cat outside. Shuts the door. The cat backs up. There's this round portal window right next to the door. Comes flying through the window, and then you see the scene open, the cat sets Fred outside. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? The, the cat actually sets Fred outside, and Fred tries to get back in. The door is locked, and he's pounding on the door going, Wilma! And I thought, man, that's exactly what condemnation does to us. It comes in, it hijacks our temple, it hijacks our home. It says, listen, I'll tell you what, I'm the boss here. You can stay outside. It's, and the way we go after this thing is we go after it by saying, we're calling out for Wilma when we ought to be calling out for this man, Christ Jesus, period. Forget Wilma. Wilma can't help you. Call out on the word. Call out Jesus himself. He's the one that can help you. It's Christ Jesus. So if it's true, if it's true, if you saw, if you continue to read there in Daniel, what you'll find is Daniel and his three comrades, they were fed nothing but vegetables and water. 
And they, they got healthy. Man, these guys were like beaming with, with health. The king said, I want you to eat meat, and I want you to eat this choice meat, and I want you to drink all this wine. I think that's the diet you ought to have. And they knew better. They're like, no, 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 no. What we need is carrots. And what we need is, you know, I mean, Bugs Bunny can live on carrots, and he's pretty cool. We need vegetables. And so at the end, he said, just check us in about 10 days and see what's going on with it. And he, and he went back and he checked him in about 10 days, and those guys looked healthy. So the, so the guy that was in charge of him took away all the choice meat uh, that the king had given him and all that wine, and they lived there. Listen, if that's true in the natural, we know if we eat healthy, we do better, right? We, our bodies do better. Our bodies respond better. <laughs> all I'm thinking about is that buffet I'm going to after <laughs> service right now down the street at Golden Corral. <laughs> Anyway, you know if we eat healthier, we do better, right? Could it be true that it's also that way spiritually? Could it be true what you feed upon spiritually and emotionally will make you better? Not even better. It will heal you. Jesus didn't come to make us better. He came to save us. He came to heal us. He came to deliver us. He came to prosper us. And so it was with Daniel. Go ahead and read that sometime. I just don't have time to go there right now. Steve, I want you to... um, Uh, begin that PowerPoint right now. All right, I want you to see something for a second. You thought the King James Bible was probably the oldest English translation. It's not. In fact, there are many translations of the Bible in English that are older than King James. And this is not even the oldest. But I want you to take a look. Have you ever heard of the Wycliffe Bible? Look at the year it was printed, 1382. King James was printed in 1611. I want you to see how Romans 8, chapter 1 reads. Therefore, they all start off about the same. Therefore, now nothing of condemnation is to them that be in Christ Jesus. Now, do you notice I lost my period? And it added something. None that be in Christ Jesus, which wander not after the flesh. That's how the Wycliffe Bible reads it. Now, let's fast forward about a couple hundred years and look at the Geneva Bible. We're in 1557 now. Let's look at Romans 8, chapter 1. Now then, there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, which walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you notice now we have two commas? And, and it added something. It added, but after the Spirit. Now let's take a look at the next one. This is King James, very similar to the Geneva Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh. One says who wander not after it. After it. One says who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let's take a look at now the New American Standard Bible. This was actually printed, first of all, in 1963. If you drop the new on New American Standard Bible, you have American Standard Bible. It was printed first in 1901, so it's more than 100 years old. They just did some revising over the years. So it's a very credible Bible. This is why I said Christ Jesus, period. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The New American Standard Bible, according to the preface in in that Bible, the preface is what you find at the very beginning of a book or the very beginning of a Bible. Here's the translator's fourfold aim work. In other words, they had four objectives in mind. They said, when we uh, translate this Bible, we're going to translate it, we have a fourfold objective. Number one. These publications shall be true to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now let's stop there for just a second, and I want to say this. They were basically saying, we're not going to take someone else's translation and then retranslate it. We're going to go back to the original Hebrew manuscripts, the original Aramaic, and the original Greek manuscripts, and we're going to translate the entire Bible based upon the the original manuscripts. Number two, they shall be grammatically correct, and grammar is very important. They shall be understandable. In other words, we're going to have it read so that anybody can understand it. And number four, they shall give the Lord Jesus Christ 
his proper place, the place which the Word gives him. Therefore, no work will ever be personalized. This will not be about us. In other words, what they were saying. This is going to be about God's Word. The greatest perceived strength of the New American Standard Bible is its reliability and fidelity to the original languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. That is its greatest strength. Scholars, now when I say scholars, I'm not talking two, three, four, ten. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of scholars. They do agree about one thing, that the New American Standard Bible is the most word-for-word literal translation of all Greek translations. They'll say, when we look at this, we can't find any fault. We can see that this word was translated word for word from the Greek. Because that's the way it reads. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. So look at the parallel one time. King James Version. There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And look at the lower one, New American Standard Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see there's a big hunk of the Scripture that's either missing or it's been added? Do you see that? Because these don't read the same. Now I can understand changing some words a little bit, different words. I understand that. But there's a difference in the text here. Alright, the study today, I wanted to make sure, was by no means to discredit the King James Version of the Bible. All my Scripture memorization, I love King James. All my scripture memorization is King James. I don't think I could quote another scripture from any other. I've just chose to do that over the years. But I've always had trouble with Romans chapter 8 verse 1 because I've seen it read so differently in Bibles. I have 23 translations of the Bible on my computer at home. 12 of the 23 will read it like the New American Standard Bible. They do not add this other stuff on there. I mean there's all kinds of different translations. So here's the question. Does the NASB omit part of the scripture? Or does the King James Version add to the original Scripture? That's the question, and you get to decide. Because the reason I felt the Lord say this is so important is what you believe will carry you. What you believe will take you to where God wants you to be. It will free you up. We we heard about this message of, of freedom, being free in God this morning. Being free in Him. And if we keep reading, I realize there's no condemnation in me as long as I don't walk after the flesh, but I walk after the Spirit. So it puts the conditionality upon me now. I've got to make sure I walk in the Spirit, otherwise I'm going to be condemned. That's kind of the way it comes across. Well, as I began to study this thing out, because I'm not looking for the Scriptures to say what I want them to say. I want truth. You know me, I want truth. I want to say, listen, this is the truth. Whether I like it or not, that's the way I'm going to live it. That's the way I'm going to teach it. And what I found out is that the earliest manuscripts, when the King James Version was translated, it started in 1604 and ended in 1611. When it was translated, they only had a couple handfuls of manuscripts at the time. Since then, this is over 400 years later now, there's been hundreds, there's been thousands of manuscripts that have been found in caves and different places that predate. These are authentic manuscripts that predate, that are earlier manuscripts. If you think about this, if it's an earlier manuscript, then you have to go with what did the early version say because somewhere along the line something got changed a little bit. What I felt the Lord say to me, the absence of the words in the New American Standard Bible and many other uh, translations actually harmonize perfectly with the gospel of grace and God's unconditional love and acceptance. So why the vast difference between those two parallels right there? It's simple. Someone, somewhere, for whatever reason, somewhere along the timeline, decided to add to the original scripture, or they copied what was available. Someone had copied that, and they took a copy of a copy. 
in Romans chapter 8 verse 4 is actually where you see the verbiage, who walk not after the flesh. So three verses later you do see that, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And actually it reads this way, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You know, today it's so easy just to copy something or cut something and paste it. You know what I mean? It's so easy. I was trying to think, why would the translators do that? Why would they do that? And it's simply because even today, even in the churches today, people believe the message of grace and God's unconditional love and His message of grace is too good to be true. There's got to be some conditions behind this. No, there's no conditions behind God's grace and God's love. As I thought about this, sometimes we're so easy and so quick to change the Scripture. We're not willing to change our mind. But God says, listen, change your mind. We know a worship leader, when a song comes out and she really likes it, and she wants to start singing it for her church, she will take that song and she'll make it her own. She'll change some of the words in it, words that just don't fit with the message of love and grace. She'll begin to change some of the words. Sometimes she'll omit certain words. Sometimes she'll add certain words but she'll make it her own. Her church begins to learn it because they sit under her plan and her singing, and they begin to learn it the way she sings it. And then a month later, or two months, or six months later, they hear the song on the radio play, and they're like, oh, I know this song. We sing this song in church. And they start singing it. So well, wait a minute now. They, they suddenly realize they've got different lyrics in their head than what the radio is saying. They're saying and they, probably, they go, you're not singing that song, right? No, that person is singing the song, right? Because that's the earliest manuscript. That's the earliest recording. So it's so easy for us to be able to get off track. But the Bible says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Amen. So what is condemnation? Where does it come from? How do you make it leave? And what does it mean to be in Christ? Four quick questions. Condemnation is an adverse sentence. In other words, it's unfavorable punishment. It didn't go well for you in the courtroom. You checked in, but you didn't check out. It didn't go well for you. And God says there'll be none of that. Not in my courtroom. You see, the truth of the matter is, you weren't the one in the courtroom. Jesus was the one in the courtroom. Jesus was the one who went there on your behalf. And God says, listen, I've condemned my son. My son is condemned. My son has been condemned so that you could be acquitted. My son was, is condemned so that you could be innocent. So that you could go and sing that song. I love that song, Above All. I love that song. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms and above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and the treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what he's worth. Crucified, it says, and laid behind a stone. You live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall, but you thought of me above all. You see, he was in the courtroom, and he was the one like the rose on the floor. He was the one getting trampled so that you would not have to be trampled. I would not have to be trampled. And I'm going to tell you what the message of condemnation does. It continually wants to trample you. It wants to trample me. But I've stepped out from that now. Yeah, it still knocks on my door. But I'm going to tell you, it's not like the cat trying to get in anymore like that. I have put that cat out. I am no longer walking under that condemnation, and the Scriptures support it. Amen. Where does condemnation come from? I asked the Lord that question this week. Lord, tell me, where does condemnation come from? I felt the Lord say to me, it's caused primarily by an erroneous understanding of my word. 
You see, because if you knew the word like God knew the word, there'd be no condemnation reigning in your heart. It comes from an erroneous understanding of my word. People don't divide the word of truth. They're trying to live a new covenant life with an old covenant mindset. They've got this thing, God's going to bless me if I do right. God's going to bless me if I do right. But if I do wrong, God's going to curse me. I'm going to tell you something. That is not the case. Even in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 23, verse 20, the Bible says he has commanded a blessing. He says he has blessed me and I cannot reverse it. He has blessed me and he said, I can't even reverse it. It can't be reversed. The blessing of the Lord is on my life. No, oh, he's blessed me. I can't reverse it. In Christ, that word in is a small word with a big heart. The word in is a preposition. You know what it literally means? It means a fixed position. And my mind said, fixed position, huh? <laughs> I was singing to my class the other day. I was singing them the hokey pokey song. Do you remember that? <laughs> do you remember that song? You go to any wedding reception, everybody's going to do the hokey pokey. You know, you put your left foot in, you put your left foot out, you put your left foot in, and you shake. You got to get that head thing going. Shake it all about. You do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Are you kidding me? And it starts the right foot, and pretty soon it's the elbows, and I don't know what all parts you put in your backside in. It does say something about your backside. You put your backside in. But it said, put your head in, put your head out. Eventually it works its way around to put the whole man in, you put the whole man out. You know, it's songs, crazy songs like that, that condition us. It's not that way with God. We're not in one moment and then out the next. We're just not like the hokey pokey, are we? And those four Hebrew children, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they understood that. They understood I'm not in one moment and out. I don't have one foot in Jerusalem and one in Babylon. I'm not in the city of rest and the city of mixture at the same time. Listen, if you want to stay in the city of mixture, then go live in the city of mixture. It's okay. You can still go to heaven like that. You know, Daniel was an awesome man. Once he got over there, he was like a teenager when he went to Babylon, and he wrote his last things in Daniel when he was 80-some years old. He was an awesome man of God. He learned how to live in, it's okay, but don't try to live in Babylon and Jerusalem at the same time. It'll drive you crazy. It really will. As I was thinking about this fixed thing, this uh, fixed position, I thought about the two most popular mortgages that we have. We have an adjustable rate mortgage, they call it an ARM, and we have a fixed rate mortgage. Those are your two most popular mortgages. The adjustable rate start off with a lower payment, but next year, higher interest. Next year, higher interest. <laughs> next year, higher. You just don't know where it's going. Most people don't sign up for adjustable rate mortgages. They go for that fixed rate mortgage because they like that stability. Well, listen, in Christ means a fixed position. It means nothing's going to change. My first mortgage payment one month down the road is going to be the same 30 years down the road as it was back then. That's what it means to be fixed and in Christ. It means no variables. It's a fixed position. You say, you got a scripture that says there's no variables? I do, actually. Yes, Lord, thank you. James chapter 1, verse 17. It says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness. <laughs> there's no variableness with God. You're not in one moment and out the next. Neither shadow of turning you see, the old covenant had variables. It did. But because of the perfect gift that it's talking about in here, it's Christ Jesus, period. My next point, the law didn't die, we did. 
The law didn't die, we did. Romans chapter 8 opens with this amazing word. It's the word therefore. That's kind of a hard word to understand if you just start at Romans 8. Do you ever notice when a jury is about to deliver the sentence, read the sentence? They always talk, ba 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 Mr. So-and-so, ba 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 And they said, therefore. The jury will always say, therefore, we find the defendant guilty or innocent or whatever it may be. They always use that word, therefore. What are they saying? They're saying, in light of all this evidence, everything we've been listening to for the last week or two, or the last month or so, in light of all that evidence, therefore, we find him not guilty. So when you look at Romans chapter 8, and it begins with therefore, you have to say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean therefore? That means whatever was written in Romans chapter 7, the chapter before it, there's the evidence. There's the evidence of why there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The evidence is right there. It's so easy to see. Let me read it to you. Four verses, Romans chapter 7, 1 through 4. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as the person lives. For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law or released from Mr. Law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So... So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Oh, my, 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 what a narrative, what a revelation in there. And here's the way I explain it. You've got Mr. Law right here, and you've got Mr. Grace over here. And before I came to become the bride of Mr. Grace, I was married to Mr. Law. (laughs) It's me in the middle. Mr. Law, Mr. Grace, and me in the middle. And I was married to Mr. Law. And I finally got to the point where I said, you know, I don't want to be married to you anymore. But you have to, according to this word, it says, if the law dies. And I thought, how's the law going to die? Is the law still alive? The law's still alive, isn't it? I thought, how is the law going to die? It's saying, in order for me to be released from Mr. Law, he's got to die. And I thought, in my lightning quick mind, I thought, you know what, how about if I die? <gasps> I got this figured out. If I die, I could be released from the same law. But that would be an empty victory, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know what an empty victory is? It's where you win and lose at the same time. <gasps> I thought, if I die, I'm released from Mr. Law. But then I realized, according to those scriptures, Jesus stepped in and said, hey, I got an idea. How about if I die? <laughs> How about if I die? But before I die, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach out and grab you. <laughs> and I'm going to reach out and grab you. And you. And you. And me. And you. And I'm going to put you inside of me so that you can die with me. That will release you from Mr. Law. It'll release you from Mr. Law. That's what it means in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when it says, I am crucified with Christ. When he died, we died inside of him. I'm crucified with Christ. And yet I'm alive. I'm more alive than I've ever been in my whole life because I've been crucified with Christ. Oh, my, my. 
In Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. So when I thought about the, Mr. Law, he's perfect, actually. But then I was talking to my wife about it yesterday, and I said, You know what, honey? The law doesn't beat his wife, and he's not mean to his wife. She said, Yeah, but he makes her work. <laughs> I said, You're right. She's wise, isn't she? <laughs> he makes her get the job. And that's what the law does. It makes you work. You're always working and working and working. You're working these, you're taking on part-time jobs. You're, you're just working all the time. When you come home, you got to work, 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 work. Mr. Law makes you work all the time. Mr. Law is very demanding. He's a fault finder. He's rigid. He gives no breaks. And he brings no gifts to his wife. Even when you've done good and you've obeyed him, he's like, you're supposed to do that. Now just make sure you do it again next time, just the way you did it this time. He's this, this guy of perfection. He's rules without relationship. That's what Mr. Law is. Do you know what the greatest need for a human being is? It's love. Love is the greatest need of every man and every woman. And guess what? Mr. Law can't meet that need. The law can't love you. The law can't love you. But Mr. Grace, Mr. Grace can love you. And he did love us. And the Bible says he demonstrated his awesome love for us. And while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He's a much better husband, isn't he? He's a much better husband. Amen. Therefore, I can celebrate this gift of no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And now love. I love how Romans chapter 8 ends. It ends with some of the most power-packed verses there are. It talks about what can't separate you from the love of God. Now, I know I've preached on that before. He goes through a list of 17 different forces that cannot separate you from my love. So it begins with this powerhouse message of, of no condemnation. It ends with this power-packed message of no separation. Praise God. You know why? Because of Christ Jesus, period. Here's my conclusion. If as believers we want to walk in victory, then we've got to renew our minds and bring our thoughts into harmony with the word of grace. You see, under the spirit of grace, you and I have been released from that first husband, Mr. Law, so that we could be married to another. His name is Mr. Grace. We entered into a fixed position in Christ, <laughs> in our new husband, Jesus Christ, whereby we can proclaim what Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says. And here's what it says. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What part of that don't we get? He says it made me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has become our kinsman redeemer and is dispensed in every believer the gift of no condemnation, whereby we can celebrate every moment with our new husband. My challenge, I want you to rest in the finished work of grace. I mean it. I want you to rest. The crickets have been removed. Just see that. The cockroaches have been removed. Nebuchadnezzar, the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar is dead to you anyway. Don't let him reign in your heart and in your life. There is nothing left for you to do. There is nothing left for you to prove. You don't have to go get the job. Jesus said it is finished. And he was talking about a finished work. I have finished the work. Hear the resounding words of your husband Jesus when he says, it is finished. The saber-toothed cat <laughs> has been removed. And here's the thing I, the Lord showed me the other day. He said, let the imagery 
of your wedding day to Jesus. Every time condemnation comes and knocks on your door, let that imagery of your wedding day to Jesus trump every attack that the enemy will bring your way. It's so easy to do. Don't focus on what the enemy's saying and doing. Focus upon the fact that you walked down an aisle and said yes to Jesus. You said yes to Mr. Grace. You said yes. And the way he sees you as a beautiful bride adorned before her beloved husband. There's no condemnation in Christ. He's the husband. There's no condemnation in you, the bride. It's Christ Jesus, period. Amen? Amen. Father, we want to thank you in Jesus' name for the gift of no condemnation. I want to thank you, Father, that the reality of your truth and your love and your grace and the reality of the cross is something we focus on when condemnation tries to knock on our door. We are blessed people of God. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. I want to thank you, Daddy, there was nothing overlooked. There was nothing that you needed to add on later. There was nothing. It was a finished work. You took everything into consideration. I want to thank you that the wife doesn't have to perform to get her husband to love her. You said you loved us before even you laid the foundations of the earth. And so, Father, I want to thank you for that great love, that great love that will carry me. That great love when the enemy tries to knock me down, I can rise up and I can say, no, my God loves me. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, period. Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, we receive this truth. Amen. Amen. You receive that truth? You receive that word today? That's a word. That is a word. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.